Hello, welcome to the Friday, April 16th, 2021 edition of the Sands and Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich, and today I'm recording from Jacksonville, Florida. Today I wrote a little uh, post and probably don't really do the topic justice, but about setting up your own internal certificate authority. I see really two big reasons why you want to do this. First of all, yes, you could get free certificates from sites like Let's Encrypt, but the problem with that is that uh, these sites keep certificate transparency logs. So essentially you're advertising your internal host names to the world by retrieving these certificates. And we actually have seen uh, some scans immediately following having a certificate issued. Secondly, having your internal certificate authority, of course, gives you more freedom in how you exactly authenticate to that authority, how you verify what host names you would like to validate using that internal certificate authority. So the big piece here is that in the old days, you could essentially sort of set this up with a bunch of shell scripts and then issue yourself certificates that were valid for a very long time. I often used to do something like 10 years, which was fine for these internal certificates. I could deploy them and then essentially forget about them. But browsers lately have become more picky and will not accept certificates that are valid for more than 13 months. So now you have to actually maintain these certificates. And of course, the protocol that we all love from Let's Encrypt is the Acme protocol that often allows us to automate that process. Putting all of this together led me to a small step. Small step is a certificate authority that I believe originally sort of started out for SH keys and managing them, but it's a very capable certificate authority that also supports the ACME protocol. So you can use the cert bot that you find installed on pretty much all Linux systems, or at least available on all Linux systems to then automatically request and maintain certificates that you create yourself. As far as validating that uh, the certificate authority will be allowed to issue a certain certificate, I actually like a dynamic DNS. Uh, that works often a little bit better than things like HTTP in particular on IoT style devices and again on an internal network, it's usually not all that difficult to set that up and get that going. So if you're interested, take a look at my post. And uh, while the post itself is probably a little bit short, I have at the end plenty of references with more detailed information. And of course, one of the big news items today was action taken against Russia for some of the recent solar winds attacks and other issues. Now, as part of this, the NSA published the top five vulnerabilities that they see the Russian SVR used to target networks. And well, it's actually vulnerabilities that uh, we do see everybody use more or less. Fortinet, uh, I think I mentioned Fortinet uh, last week, the Simpra collaboration suite, I haven't really tracked that too much, but uh, that's uh, somewhat calmly displayed 
deployed open source piece of software, Pulse Secure VPN. Uh, I think that uh, was here in the podcast mentioned earlier this week due to a certificate issue they had. Citrix, of course, that's always up there. And then VMware Workspace ONE access so uh, these are vulnerabilities that uh, well uh, maybe if you have some extra time today you may want to take a look at your network and make sure you are patched if you're not patched well someone will have compromised them already some of these vulnerabilities for example the 40 gate vulnerabilities go back to 2018 and positive security came out with an interesting blog post enumerating uh, vulnerabilities in a large number of desktop applications that are all linked to insecure URL handling. Affected is, for example, Telegram, Nextcloud, uh, VLC, uh, Libra and OpenOffice, uh, Bitcoin and Dogecoin wallets, Wireshark and Mumble. Now, the problem here is that if uh, these applications process URLs, they will not necessarily uh, validate the scheme correctly. So, for example, usually we expect HTTP colon or HTTPS colon at the beginning. But, well, uh, there's a wide range of possibilities. Uh, like uh, for example SMB is a very common one but then you also have for example steam colon which would then often automatically open uh, the uh, steam video game engine uh, file colon is also a commonly exploited one so a lot of possibilities here and interesting blog post I recommend you take a look at in particular if you're a developer and you're dealing with validating URLs well, it's Friday again, and uh, with me today I have uh, Brian to talk about uh, his uh, SANS EDU paper. Brian, could you introduce yourself, please? My name is uh, Brian Scarborough. I've been uh, working in cybersecurity for about the last 15 years or so, uh, currently working with uh, the DOD, securing an infrastructure uh, there here at Fort Gordon uh, in Georgia. Just finished up my SANS Information Security Engineering Master's program and uh, the research malware detection and t- encrypted TLS traffic. So TLS, uh, of course, uh, these days, 90% of traffic is encrypted, if not more, with TLS and Malware is encrypted as well, or the command control channel. What did you find there? How are you able to still detect if malware is uh, on your network? So there were a lot of things that surprisingly looked different uh, when analyzing the data compared to uh, normal TLS traffic. Uh, in kind of a normal web conversation, we're able to to determine that there's a small request out to a web server, say google.com, and then Google will respond with a much larger response. And sometimes, especially in things like command and control, that can look very different. You see the conversation being uh, a small request inbound from the server with, say, if it's exfiltration or things like that, it can be a larger response uh, outbound. Uh, as far as the, the data that I was analyzing, primarily looking at uh, the, the handshake of the TLS conversation, it was able to, to determine things like uh, difference in uh, packet lengths. Ports and, uh, were very different. They were, they were very widespread across the TLS traffic where it was very controlled and, and the ports you would think it would be for the, the standard benign TLS traffic. So things like that made it uh, more statistic, statistically available to to use things like machine learning to determine, you know, if something is malicious or if it's benign. Of course, the alternative is always uh, just to do a machine in the middle uh, to basically decrypt a TLS. 
but uh, that's not always an option or no it's not so so i work in in dod and have for years and they do you know everything in line is decrypted so that brings with it, you know, layers of complexity uh, and potentially complication as well as, you know, potential legal issues if, if a company doesn't, uh, say, bypass certain traffic, say, you know, PHI or, uh, you know, other types of information like bank information, those types of things. And so, you know, that inline decryption is not necessarily, you know, always an option for, for a company. So we want to find ways in, in the security community that we can still do these levels of analysis uh, but uh, but not have to do that in the event that you know it's it's not feasible to do so. So really, your research looked into all of these artifacts, in particular of uh, the TLS handshake, to figure out with some certainty whether or not traffic is malicious or benign. Uh, how well did this work? So I used a couple of different machine learning models. Uh, support vector machine was the main one, uh, and then a one class support vector machine. Uh, and, and, and these work very well, actually, uh, because there was such a disparity between the, the normal benign traffic. It all looked very, very similar compared to the malware traffic that in, in uh, uh, kind of, like I said, ports and things like that were all over the place. And so this created those differences uh, that gave me in my one class support vector machine about a 98 uh, percent detection rate. So. Can you describe a little bit uh, how these support vector machine algorithms work? Uh, is there sort of an analogy or so that you can use to explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so what a support vector machine does, uh, it's, it's what's called a binary classifier. So uh, in this instance, I wasn't looking to determine, hey, this is uh, Emotet and this is TrickBot. And you know, I was just looking, is this malware or is it not? So it was a binary decision. Uh, good or bad. And so in that instance, the support vector machine uh, does a, a mathematical analysis of the different data sets, the, the malware and the malicious data set. And then it creates what's called a hyperplane, which is a, a line in two-dimensional space uh, in, in between the two data sets in an attempt to classify them or to separate them from one another. So, uh, so then anything that becomes on the left side is one type of traffic and anything on the right side is another type of traffic, uh, just for instance. And so, uh, so using the one class support vector machine, it varies a little bit in that you only train it with your benign data, with your known good data. So, we could use that in a commercial or an enterprise instance where uh, we put it on the network and we train it with our known good, you know, day-to-day -day traffic. And then it's able to determine anything that falls uh, outside of that norm uh, and, and would flag it as potentially malicious for us. So it kind of learns what's normal or it sort of draws this surface that encloses all the normal data if something doesn't fall within that surface then it's considered not normal and, well, possibly malicious. Uh, does this help with false positives? Does this give you less false positives because you train it sort of almost exclusively with uh, normal good data? False positives were a little bit on the high side, but uh, the advantage, again, I would rather see a false positive on the network and trace that down than to have a false negative, you know, something that's determined to be actually malicious, but it's flagged by the system as uh, as benign. So. 
Um, so false positive rate was a little higher than I wanted it to be, uh, but it, it's still something that can be worked on over time to refine those the parameters of the machine learning algorithm to, to fine tune it to what you need. So it's interesting. So you can tune it a little bit to be either you know more false positives, more false negatives. So you can kind of make up your decision here, what you find is more appropriate for a network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and so it gives the analyst those options to kind of set those uh, parameters based on, like you said, what's most important to them. And uh, would it be able to detect if an attacker is using benign software? Let's say they're using, for example, JavaScript running in, in Google Chrome in order uh, to do the data exfiltration. Or is this something that would sort of flow under the radar uh, with, uh, with this algorithm? So it would really depend on, because I'm looking at the TLS uh, handshake itself, then it would really kind of depend on the nature of the handshake. Uh, is, is the uh, malicious, is the C2 server, right, something that's maybe going to respond differently than a normal Google.com or something like that? There's also some open source Intel sources uh, that pull in. So I'm looking at things like, uh, uh, is, is it part of a domain generation algorithm? Uh, for the DNS, uh, for the URL. So that's something that helps to weight towards, uh, you know, malicious traffic. We're looking at OSINT sources like Alien Vault, OTX, and things like that to pull those in and help round out. So it's it's a little bit more than just the TLS handshake. It's also these open source Intel resources that help to provide a little more insight. So basically your algorithm gives you sort of a score for how likely this TLS uh exchange is malicious or not, but then you use these other sources uh, to confirm or uh, maybe even uh, eliminate uh, some false positives. Yes, yes, you could do that for sure. Yeah, yeah so that's uh, pretty cool. Uh, now, uh, the paper is in the reading room and there will be a link uh, to the paper in the show notes. Any final words, anything else that uh, you're working on right now or just relaxing after being done with your degree? Yeah, that's really it. Just trying to get things back to normal. So uh, I have some uh, flower beds to build this weekend and uh, just trying to get our garden going this year. So trying to get, like I said, back to normal. That's exciting too. So uh, thanks a lot and good luck. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening and talk to you again on Monday. Bye.